Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Good morning to you. Good to see you on this first Sunday of Advent. And on this first Sunday of Advent, Advent, we read Scripture from both the Old and the New Testaments. First, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64 in the Hebrew Bible, words of expectation. The prophet writes, Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence as fire causes wood to burn and water to boil. Your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame. When you came down long ago, you did awesome deeds beyond our highest expectations. And oh, how the mountains quaked. For since the world began, no ear has heard, no eye has seen a God like you who works for those who wait for him. And then from the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, words of fulfillment. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel said told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. That is Isaiah 64, 1-4, Luke 1, 26-33, the Word of God for the people of God today. Expectation. That's the watchword of Advent. Anticipation. Suspense. Hope. Simply look to your young children or to your grandchildren and you will see it. Get around a group of kids and you will feel it rolling off of them this time of year. Or remember what it was like to be a child for this season of the year. When the tree was up and decorated, when the Christmas break from school had finally arrived, when the carols started to be sung and once the stockings were hung by the chimney with care. I hope if you go back to your childhood or to that of your children, you can recapture some of those inner butterflies, that silly and giddy energy of Christmas. If I visit my own memories, I can still feel that. For me, there was a clear sign that Christmas was indeed near. If you were a child of the 1960s, 70s, or 80s, 
or a parent during those decades, you will share this memory with me today. It wasn't the tree. Sometimes we didn't really have one or it was raised very late in the season. It wasn't Advent celebration at church. We didn't celebrate with candles and all that high church accoutrement, humbugged all of that. It wasn't the playing of Christmas songs on the radio. The tiny AM station in my hometown didn't even start cranking those out until the week before Christmas. You know what informed me that Christmas time was indeed coming? The return of the animated Christmas special. Oh, how the mountains quaked and the angels announced that the kingdom had come. Once, cartoons like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas, and a Charlie Brown Christmas started showing up on the evening television screens. Then I knew that my dreams of Hot Wheels, bicycles, and Red Rider BB guns were close at hand. I cannot tell you, a wide-eyed, bespeckled child of the 1970s, the undiluted and perfect satisfaction of sitting on the floor in front of a 19-inch black-and-white television, taking in the wonders of those annual Christmas cartoons. And a few years later, when we finally got a color television like everybody else in the neighborhood, my eyeballs almost exploded out of my head. I was of an elected, chosen, and blessed generation favored by God. No one to live before us and no one who has followed us will ever, ever know that wondrous joy. It began December 18, 1962 with Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol when it premiered on NBC television. It was the first of its kind opening the door to animated marvels such as no eye had ever seen. And it ended, I think, on October 1st, 1992, when Atlanta mogul Ted Turner launched the Cartoon Network. Cartoons and animation were commonplace now. Who cared about a little 30-minute show on a cold December Friday night on network television? So we had this 30-year window. That's all we had. And when YouTube was founded and quietly unveiled online in 2005, well, traditional television ever gaining the attention of children again, that was over and done with forever and ever. Amen. So to celebrate Advent this year, I'm going to take you back to my favorite Christmas specials. And on this first Sunday of season, with the candle of hope burning and expectation in the air, I will begin by saying, Happy Birthday. Because that's exactly what Frosty the Snowman said every time they put a hat on his head and he sprung to life. Frosty the Snowman did not begin as an animated Christmas special. It began as a children's song. It was written by Jack Rollins and Steve Nelson in 1950. The two men set out to duplicate the success of a song that had been written the previous year in 1949 entitled Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Put a pin right there. We just might come back to him. The two writers were then able to convince Gene Autry, that singing cowboy who had sung Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, to actually record and sing Frosty. And the royalty checks started pouring in. The song was certified gold 
in his very first year. Frosty's story became a children's book. And if you want to get nostalgic, one of those little golden children's books. And then it became a short, spooky, claymation sort of thing, more fit for Halloween than Christmas. But Frosty truly came to life, pun intended, 20 years later on Sunday evening, December 7th, 1969. A 25-minute animated special was broadcast for the first time on CBS television. It followed, by the way, a Charlie Brown Christmas that evening. Let's put a pin right there, too. Which guaranteed the success of that show for years to come. Jimmy Durant was the narrator of that story, and he sang his own version of the original song, Such That It Is. It's a story we know well. Christmas is upon the village of North Castle, New York. This is inferred. Steve Nelson, one of the song's writers, lived nearby. And the historic district of North Castle claims to be Frosty's hometown. And you can go visit it as such even today. Children, with all of the anticipation I was telling you about, are on their last day of school before break. Snow is falling outside, and all they want to do is go out and play in it. But they are stuck in the last class of the year with Professor Hinkle attempting to do magic tricks. And he is an absolute failure at it. The kids are bored to tears. Class is finally dismissed as Hinkle throws away his magic hat because it's a bust and doesn't seem to work anyway. The school children, led by a young girl named Karen, when Karen meant something else than it does today, build a snowman. And the snowman had what? A corncob pipe and a button nose and two eyes made out of coal. And then they labor over the name of this creation. Should we call him Harold? No. Bruce? Nah. Christopher Columbus? No. Oatmeal. Oatmeal. And then Karen says, how about Frosty? And the children in agreement shout, Frosty it is. Hinkle's hat is carried to them on the wind. They slap it on this clump of snow's head and happy birthday. He was alive as he could be and the children say he could laugh and play just the same as you and me. Y'all know this, see? Obviously, Hinkle wants his hat back. The temperature begins to rise so that Frosty begins to melt. The kids try to buy a ticket for Frosty to the North Pole, away from Hinkle, where he can live without fear of melting. But it costs more than $3,000 in 1969 dollars. Chaos ensues. Karen and Frosty hobo onto a refrigerated rail car to the Klondike. Great for Frosty, almost deadly for Karen. Forest animals build a fire to keep Karen warm. And ultimately, Frosty and Karen take refuge in a greenhouse that is growing Christmas poinsettias. Hinkle finds them, locks them inside until Frosty melts away, only to have Santa Claus arrive, revive Frosty with fresh Christmas snow and wind. Karen returns home. Hinkle is reprimanded severely by Santa, and Frosty makes it to the North Pole, and everyone lives happily ever after. Now... What happens when you take a little wide-eyed, bespeckled child of the 1970s and you saturate him 
with Bible verse memorization requirements and you drag him to church every time the door is open. But at the same time, you instill in him a deep, deep love for the Bible and for Jesus. And then you put him in front of the TV to watch Christmas cartoons. That little boy starts seeing Jesus everywhere. And that's not a bad thing. Even in Frosty the Snowman. Now, when these conclusions started coming to me as a child, I dared not share them with anyone because it's heresy. Or unorthodox at the least. But I have now discovered enough blog posts, diary entries, and at least three college papers from others who saw what I saw. Now, you may not have seen what we saw, but when I get finished in a minute, you will never see Frosty the Snowman in the same way again. Karen is the one who puts the hat on Frosty's head, giving him life. His life is a remarkable one, a unique, miraculous one. Given this, the children give him their devotion. They follow him as he proceeds triumphantly into town. He has a brief run-in with the law who makes clear that he's not following the rules. In fact, his very existence doesn't follow the rules. Ultimately, he sacrifices himself to save Karen, seemingly conquered by the evil Professor Hinkle, only to have Father Christmas arrive and with life-giving wind reanimate Frosty. He brings him back to life in a garden as Karen weeps with misunderstanding. And this life is permanent, for in the sequels that would follow, Frosty doesn't even need to wear a hat anymore to remain alive. And then Frosty leaves for a place that the children cannot travel, but with the promise, don't you cry, I'll be back again someday. Now, I can hear it in the coffee shops tomorrow around Santa Rosa Beach. At church yesterday, our pastor said that Frosty the Snowman is the reincarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. No, I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that Arthur Rankin and Jules Bass, who produced the TV special, or Romeo Muller, who wrote it, are overtly in telling their story this way. But these men did produce a number of incredible cartoons over the Christmas years, some of them secular, but many of them embracing Christian, Christian themes, particularly their production of a little film called The Little Drummer Boy. The Little Drummer Boy is a little Jewish boy who plays his drums to earn a living on the street because his parents have been killed. And on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, he finds his way to Jerusalem where he encounters the living baby Jesus. These are the same writers. So I don't think I'm that far off, am I? In all of their stories, there is a consistent theme. There is crisis, there is evil, there is injustice. But in every story, there is an heroic figure, a hopeful figure, one who by pure goodness and integrity and sacrifice makes things right. Now, is Frosty the snowman, the Christ? God, no. But neither is Clark Kent, a.k.a. Superman. 
Neither is Shane in the old Western movie, or Neo in the Matrix, Big John in the Green Mile, Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, Aslan, Frodo, the Lone Ranger. I can go on and on. Everywhere you look, if you look for it, you will see the same story being told by humans all over the world. A mysterious birth, a divine mission, innocence, but unfair accusation and unjust death or suffering, a death that leads to victory over evil, and often this arch-typical character is brought back to life to the joy of his followers, even while others refuse to believe. I mean, Frosty the Snowman is a fairy tale, some say. He was made of snow, but the children know how he came to life one day. And Hinkle tells them, snowmen don't come back to life. When you grow up one day, you'll stop believing such things. The archetype is a concept born out of the mind of Carl Jung. It's this universal pattern. Regardless of what time we live in, whatever culture we may be a part of, there is a recognition in our collective consciousness, our instincts, that bring us back time and time again to the same stories, the same lessons, the same struggles. We aren't born into this world with hearts and minds as clean as an untouched canvas. We are born with brushstrokes already applied, innate, unlearned, but unavoidable desires for love, for connection, for community, for intimacy, for justice, for peace. As the Hebrew Bible says, you, O oh God, have planted eternity in our hearts. And we're also born with innate fears, suspicions, awareness of our frailty, and this raging pride and ego that we have, and a propensity for violence. As the psalmist said, be gracious to us, O Lord, because you know that we are but dust. All this is within us, deep within us, deep inside all of us, beneath the surface. It's why humans Keep acting the same way over and over and over again. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's why we can't seem to learn from the past. It's why a modern global society is organized not much different than an ancient tribal society. Humans carry and have carried the same fears and limitations for ages upon ages. And we carry the same desires for love and redemption. What was true of humanity millennia ago remains true today. There truly is nothing new under the sun. And the way out, so to speak, is nothing new either. It is the emission and the evolvement and the recognition of our powerlessness and that only a higher power can save us and make us sane. So we make the conscious decision to surrender our will and lives to the care of God as we understand God. For 2,000 years, our tradition has seen and understood God as Jesus of Nazareth. The hopes and fears of all the years, to quote a Christmas carol, are met in Him. That is, all that swirls beneath the suffer, surface of our lives, He draws out. He grants grace and goodness and love and peace, these truest desires of our hearts. 
And he confronts our pride and our ego and our violence and our fears, teaching us how to let these go and to become true children of God. And once you see God in Christ doing that work, it becomes impossible not to see God doing that work. For a long time, religion has been about pulling God down to earth, begging God or the gods to enter our world. And it still is. Religion still is that way for many. Oh, God, send us some rain. Actually, no, stop sending us some rain. God, give us a miracle. God, send us your spirit. All of our rituals and our sacraments have been about trying, begging, striving. The opening words of the text today, Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And then when we are dead, we start hoping and praying and striving that God will pull us up to heaven. And what I've tried to say today is that all of this is largely unnecessary. God is already here. God is everywhere. All things are in God if you stop to look around. There is a Latin proverb for this, vocatas atque non vocatas. Invoked or not invoked, called or not called, God is present. Invoked or not invoked, God is present. God is present in the child, lying in the manger, in the raindrops, heavy as they have been of late. God is in the sunrise and the sunset. God is in your joy of this season. And yes, for some of you, God is even there to meet you in your grief and in your memories. God is in the shining eyes of a child <laughs> sitting in front of a technicolor screen. And even in the dancing cartoons on that screen. God is present in our new days and in our old stories. In the warmth of a morning coffee. In the wet nose of your dog. In the hug of your grandmother. In the laughter of your grandchildren. While God may have burst onto the scene. That cold night in Bethlehem so long ago. God did not stay there. God is present. In all things, and all things are present in God. And may God give us eyes to see, and ears to hear, and hearts to understand.